0: Well, if you have a Bible this morning, I invite you to take it out to the book of Ruth. I even tried to help you out this morning. In your blue Bibles, it's page 127, all right? Uh, I just want to thank you on behalf of our our family for allowing us this time away the last couple weeks as we spent time in Florida and then later on to the Caribbean a little bit. Um, It was warmer there than here. When we came back, we found that out. Uh, We've been battling running noses and head colds and all that kind of stuff, but we're grateful uh, just for that time. encouragement in that as well. Thank you to those who are just taking part in Operation Christmas Child and so you're like, oh I forgot my shoebox or this and that. We're not going to deliver them until tomorrow morning. So if that happened and you forgot your shoebox or it's not quite done yet, no worries. You can put them at any time between now and tomorrow morning outside our front door and just in the box is fine if we're not around. So um, they need to be delivered by tomorrow because then that all gets packed up in Hampton Falls and it's gone. And so it's, it, collection week is this week and so it has to be there by tomorrow in order to be able to get to its intended location uh, if you consider it all a pain and help participate with the shipping costs of your shoebox you can do that right online one of the cool things is you'll get an email later on they'll tell you where your shoebox ended up and what part of the world so it's kind of a neat way to just see how god's going to use that because uh, our conviction is not that he would just give christmas to kids but the gospel goes with these shoeboxes and this opportunity all right i 'm um, trying to help you out i 'm trying to grow right, as a pastor here i 'm trying to help you type A people out all right so some of you don 't like that because you like me and you want to be flipping about things okay um, but I want to help you out Where are we going preaching wise i 'm going to give you now through January the whole shebang okay so today we 're going to start a story or, through the look through the book of Ruth and we 're for the next three weeks looking at in the book of Ruth and the life of Ruth together. On the 9th of, of December, uh, we will have some missionaries here with us sharing uh, that morning. Jonathan and Amanda Vining, who some of us went to college with, are missionaries from Columbia. So they're going to be here with us on that Sunday morning. We'll have an Advent series, the 16th, the 23rd, and the 30th. We'll have a Christmas Eve service we'd love for you to come to. It's a candlelight service uh, as well. We'll conclude, January, uh, conclude Ruth in January. We have the Sanctity of Life Sunday that we'll be celebrating, and the last Sunday in January will be our Prayer and Vision Sunday for the new year. Okay? That's where we're going. That's the plan, and we're always flexible to how God wants to lead us in that plan. Okay? I'm going to pray, we're going to jump into the book of Ruth together this morning. All right? God, thank you for your word that leads us and guides us. Um, It is the primary motive of which you reveal yourself and your character and your nature and your desire for us, your people. And so as we spend some time this morning, I pray that your spirit would guide us, would guide my words, that uh, what is useful and good is from you, is remembered and stored, and what is not is forgotten. God, we just cling to you this morning in your name. Amen. My guess is if you have heard of the book of Ruth before, you probably know the overarching story of Ruth. It's not a very long book, just four chapters. Right, The author was, is really unknown or unconfirmed at this point. We believe it's written somewhere uh, around 1010 10 B.C. The author likely used just accurate oral accounts and written accounts as historical documents to put together this writing. We believe the later date is due to the referencing of Ruth being an ancestor of David. Well, guess what? You have to know that David was born to talk about David being in the ancestry line of Ruth. So it makes sense to later writing more like 1010-ish. Uh, we know that takes t- takes place between the time of the judges, all right, before there was an established king ruling over a, a united kingdom. And so what do we know? That really for God's people, life was chaotic. Uh, if you've read through the book of Judges before, uh, there were some that were phenomenal and pursued the heart of God, and there were others that they say were kind of wicked than the one before it, which is hard to believe when you read the wickedness of some of the judges. The key themes that we see in Ruth are this kindness and redemption we see we will see kindness at ruth between naomi and ruth that boaz has to ruth as well and we're going to be reminded through this story of true redemption that redemption always restores people the big picture in all this is this that god's people experience will continue to experience and have always experienced his sovereignty his wisdom and his covenant grace And these are often revealed in hard circumstances, immediately through the kindness of others. You may have come today expecting a thanksgiving message. I've never preached one. I'm sorry. It's just not my wheelhouse. Um, But I actually believe this dovetails quite nicely to to the thought and the spirit of thanksgiving. Major characters that you will see here will be Naomi, Ruth, Boaz, some others named Elimelech, Malon, Chilion, and Orpah. Big picture is what you just got, but kindness and redemption. And the beauty of this story is that it's not a fairy tale. It happens to work out well in the end. There's heartache, there's brokenness, there's real people being affected by real life situations. And yet amongst all that is a redemptive God who cares for his people who has a covenant with his people. And that same God that we discover and see and are reminded of in the story of Ruth, you have to remind yourselves it's the same God who rules and reigns today. With that in mind, we're going to look at the first five verses of Ruth today. So you have a Bible, Ruth chapter 1. We'll read this together, verses 1 through 5. It says this, this is God's word. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife, Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went into into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabites, Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Chilion died. So the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Not necessarily an uplifting, encouraging section of Scripture, but one that I believe holds great value for us this morning. So again, what do we know about this time frame? Well, we know it's when the judges are ruling During this period, there is spiritual, social, and political unrest. And this eventually is what gives way for the people to desire an earthly king, right? thus rejecting a heavenly king and God their father. But what they saw was nations around them having an earthly king. They said that seems to go well for them. We want some of that. But in the meantime, this is just unrest taking place. The story takes place in the region of Bethlehem. Right, which is where in Judah, it's a fertile land, we're told, and yet famine strikes in. And we hear this of this man named Elimelech. See, Elimelech does what I think he believes is best. Right? Elimelech has a goal of just survival and provision. It's not in self interest, but he decides to take a trip to Moab. Right, we've got a map to show you just kind of the journey, potentially where they took. You see Bethlehem, you see the Dead Sea there, and they probably would have gone up and around it, past the river Arnon, down into Moab. It would have taken about seven to ten days to make this trek, okay? And so from that point, they're traveling, they're seeking to better understand what God's provision for them might be, but I I believe that Elimelech wanted what was best. He believed he would go far enough away, the famine would not be an issue for them. That they would, in fact, survive, if not thrive in this new place. See, Elimelech was willing to leave his people. He was willing to leave his family, to leave his clan, and to go with his wife and two sons to Moab. You can take the map down, thank you. And this is a journey. It's a journey to be traveled on, one with the best of intentions. Yet in the story of protection and safety, Elimelech seeks to give his family lies heartache. It's a family, this clan, this family from the clan of the Ephotites, right, and thinking they'd escaped hunger, right, which hunger ultimately, if left unnoticed, leaves to what? Death. They believe that they, they've freed themselves from that tragedy, but they find them sta- themselves standing in the midst of devastation though the family thought they could survive, what do they find themselves in? They find themselves surrounded by death that comes from England like regardless of whether there's food or not. So what do we find now? We find a family in a foreign land. We find Naomi being a widow. Her two sons are left with the great task of caring for their grieving mother in a foreign land, away from family, away from friends, and away from the comforts of familiarity. This story is not unlike so many of our stories. And this is what I mean by that. What we once expected to take place in life, guess what? It didn't turn out that way. So many of us grow up, right, with plans and visions and directions that we want to see, We've anticipated what our story would be like, how our tale will be told at the end of our days, and yet somehow, without our permission and without our okay, it's been deviated from the fairy tale and turned into a dramatic presentation. We know this too well. Parents die younger than their children, expect them to be. The loss of a loved one or even a child reminds us of the frailty of life. The employer that lays the individual off when they were not prepared to be without a job. Simply put, the script doesn't always go the way we think it should. If you and I were to write our stories, many of our stories would not land us where they are today. At least without some of the bumps and bruises we've had along the way. And there's a reality at play in this story for Naomi. Naomi. She, I'm sure, envisioned her future to be drastically different. I'm sure Naomi envisioned growing old with her husband, even though lifespan would not have been 60, 70, or 80 years, but she envisioned life going on. She probably envisioned one day sitting with her husband, talking about their lineage and heritage, or watching grow up in front of them. That did not happen for her. But there's an overarching truth at play. See, since as far back as stories grow, the tale of broken hearts and unfulfilled dreams exist. See, we as God's people, we have to recognize that those stories may not go as we would write them or tell them. And life may not always give us the dream ending we would like them to be. We have to recognize the theological significance at play. You and I live in a broken world. There is sin that is present, and that sin does not simply exist to make our lives miserable, but it exists, and we have to work our lives through that reality. This may seem like a fast answer. Well, it's just because of sin that this story doesn't play out right. It's because of sin that your life has not gone according to plan, or my life has had circumstances happen that I would not have preferred Though it may seem like a quick answer, before we can go any further in the story of Ruth, we have to recognize that that is the right answer. See, sin is this devastating, tear-evoking, heartbreaking element of life on planet Earth. See, even in this unfolding tale, sin has snuck its long-reaching grip into the story. We know that death is exists because of sin. We know that heartache exists because of sin. We know that that cancer pops up. We know that jobs are lost, that life turns drastically fast because sin exists in the world. And we cannot just simply say, right, that's an easy answer. That's not an easy answer. That's actually a very very complex answer. But it has drastic effects on our present reality. See again, Elimelech, he wanted only to help and to provide and care for his family, yet death took him. Naomi, I'm sure, wanted to grow old with her husband and yet find herself a widow. I'm sure Malon and Chilean wanted their dad to meet their grandkids, but that dream would not be fulfilled. See, the brokenness that they feel, the heartache has now become their existence. And for sure, at some point, they are asking themselves why. They're asking themselves, why has this taken place? Dad just wanted to provide for us. We don't know why he dies. We don't know if it's natural causes or this tragedy. We just know that death ensues and wins. And I think if you and I were honest with ourselves and with each other, we've had moments like this in our own lives. We've found ourselves sitting and pondering the same question of our given circumstance. Why? Why have things not gone according to what we thought? Why do we not get to be what seems like everybody else around us gets to have? Though this very well may be a very limited point of view, we tend to see grass much greener. On the other side, and often these circumstances and these occasions leave us just wondering why, Lord. I know one of the greatest questions my dad has is, "Why did his dad die before such a? I mean, these mid fifties, pancreatic cancer. I never knew either of my grandfathers; they both had died before I was born. And that's one of my dad's greatest questions in life. I mean, my grandfather loved the Lord. So you think, well, why would it make sense for that? The reality is that we don't get to view down time. We don't always get to have our our whys answered. And if we can't have our why answered, then what we have to begin to wrestle with is how do we walk through the given circumstance? If we can't get a guarantee on, on God telling us why something's happening, then you and I have to wrestle again with with how do we then walk through a present circumstance? A present broken dream, or, or maybe even a past one. How we answer that fundamental question will reveal a very important thing about us, and that's our worldview. See, if we answer a tragedy, if we answer heartache, if we answer brokenness or unfulfilled dreams... With a simple answer of, look, the cosmos are so large and we're just so small. What does it matter? If that's how we choose to answer that question with that perspective, then I think the the ultimate answer will just be hopelessness. If we move to an attitude of, we all get what we deserve. What goes around comes around. Kind of this karma viewpoint. Look, then we're going to be constantly trying to move the pieces of the Rubik's Cube to align our life just so so that we can guarantee a predictable outcome for everything moving forward. If that's your attempt, you'll be very frustrated. How do I know that? Have you ever tried a Rubik's Cube before? Never won. And you never will win if that's how we approach life. Perhaps we're choosing to answer, look, we recognize that God is out there somewhere, but he must be on vacation or napping. If we choose to resolve that that is why things are going wrong or why things have taken place, then we're simply believing that that we have a God who creates but does not care. And you may be sitting there thinking, look, I don't don't think that way. But how we respond to heartache, frustrated plans, or broken dreams at time, I think it actually could have a mixed bag of those things. Because we can find ourselves thinking, man, if I could have just done this differently. So what does that tell you? If I would have just moved the Rubik's Cube this way. I, I prayed, but, but God didn't answer. He must be on vacation. He must not have heard my prayer. Right? And we, we quickly find ourselves saying, well, look, the problem is either with God or it's with me. And if it's with me, now I better start doing some things to kind of change the, the new future outcome. Well, what does that say? Well, if I can just do the right things, then everything will be okay. It appears to me that our, West, our Western culture has developed a thought pattern, really a life philosophy that says all things will work themselves out for good. Right, and I say Western culture has decided that. I think there's a prevalent thought that says that if I work hard enough, things will get better. If I find the right doctor or the right treatment, health will come. If I find the right eating routines, sleeping habits, and exercise, my days on Earth will be long. I will experience kids and grandkids. The ironic thing to me is that the majority of the world does not think this way. We and, and what we experience in our culture—it it truly is a blessing. Right? We have the options of which doctor do you want to go to, which one. There's there's a myriad of experts that you can choose from. Which one would you prefer? Your insurance will cover any of them. The majority of the world does not live this way. We are living in a Western culture that that thinks because of our hard work and ingenuity and success, certainly in the business world, that everything else in life can be done the same way. Ultimately, what is it a desire for? And look, this is important because I struggle with this, and I know you probably do too. It's control. If we can just control it, then I can determine the outcome. Again, if I can just work hard enough, things will get better. We've kind of resolved in our mind that is an absolute. If I find the right doctor, the right treatment, health will come. If I work out, eat right, and exercise and sleep well, my days on earth will be long. We put a lot of will statements, absolute statements in our lives. But the reality is, We control very little. Most of our world, I think, views life through the standpoint of today is a gift, tomorrow is not a guarantee. And if tomorrow does come, it will likely be hard. I think most of the world views it that way. And we do not. So here in a few simple verses of Ruth we've been reaffirmed that life does not always go as expected. And look, you didn't need the story to tell you that. But we are reminded of this. That as much as we are trying to escape and have these will statements happen in our lives, look, from way back to roughly 1010 B.C., they've not been able to control the outcome of their future with absolute certainty. 2018 church, you cannot control the future of your outcome without absolute certainty. That has not changed. See, later on, Naomi's heartache grows, right? She then finds herself in a place that no parent, I'm convinced, ever wants to find themselves or expects to. She's burying not one, but two of her sons. They've been settled in this land for, we're told, for roughly 10 years. She now finds herself husbandless, childless. She now has two daughter in laws, Ruth and Orpah, alongside her, all wondering and asking what will happen next. Naomi's primary source of provision is gone. And as we'll see next week in her story, Naomi has some hard decisions to make based on her present reality. But what does this have to do with us today? I believe these five simple verses are ones that should cause us to pause, to think, and to process things out. What do I mean by that? I think there's some big questions to ask ourselves. This story is a reminder for ourselves that we are finite. So what questions do we ask? Well, first, what are your expectations in life? Right, we press our kids with this question every now and then. What do you want to be when you grow up? It's just fun to ask and, and to hear them change and their interests change. And it's, it's honestly just more fun to ask a four-year-old than it is even a 12-year-old because he'll do anything in the world. That, that 12-year-old and 10, 11-year-old and 10-year-old being be in four minds that can think a little bit and, and decide this is good and this is not good. I definitely don't want to do that thing. But even at a young age... We observe people around us, and what we observe in their lives really, I think, begins to play into part of what we expect life to be like. So I would submit if you grew up on the other side of the world where your next meal was not a guarantee, you would expect tomorrow to be hard. You would expect long life to be a gift and not an absolute, and you would expect each day to be a hard day of work scrounging of just trying to really to get by in so many instances. But that's not your present reality. Your present reality is, for most of you, I think, if not all of you, right, Western culture. Right? You have things like right, IRAs and retirements and 401Ks. What's that like? I don't, I don't know. Um, right? But you have those things because what? Somewhere along life, you thought that would be good preparation That would be future planning. Somewhere along your pattern of thought, you've decided to have an expectation that life would afford you a long enough venture to have that moment. That your health would be well enough, and that your relationships around you would be valuable enough to want to stay here on planet Earth a little bit longer. See what are your expectations in life? What are your plans? What are your aspirations? And, and don't give me the line while well, I'm too old. That's a lie. Because even those who are more seasoned in life still have things they'd like to do or to see or, or expect happen. Let me return you back to a question we asked earlier What is your response to things when they don't go as planned? What is your response when when what you had envisioned and and what you had hoped for doesn't take place? Because if you're making plans for the future, I want to caution you. That's not a guarantee. It's good and right to plan. It's wisdom, scriptures would say. But they're not guarantees for us. Why is it that we assume all things will turn out okay? what is this based on if we've said we if you agreed with me that there is a present reality called sin that has its grasp and reach into every facet of our lives then how can we look and say that everything will be okay i think we can but I also think there is a, just an honest reality of how we can live in the midst of brokenness as well at the same time. See, because sin is present, again, it means that not all things end happy. It means there's brokenness. It means that there is going to be a pursuit to make all things good, if we ever we can, that exists outside of God. We're, we're going to constantly pursue satisfaction and joy apart from Christ because of sin. I believe it's humanity and our brokenness that we will try to control and manipulate circumstances and situations so that we can come out okay. It's not natural for a human being to do things that bring it pain or discomfort. That's not how God hardwired us. And so my son, who when he was three decided to touch a wood stove, has a healthy respect for wood stoves. Well, why is that? Because he does not desire pain or discomfort to happen again. See, if we live in the midst of brokenness, what do we do? See, many of our choices we make in self-preservation to avoid brokenness has a ripple effect on those around us. Our choices are not often isolated, but we think they are. And often what we choose to do and how we move our chess piece in life often affects those around us. So if sin is present and our circumstances and our responses to them are not only solved, right, they're not guaranteed, not happiness cannot be promised, what should we do? Like if we live in brokenness, how do we walk through life? How? What is the follower of Jesus supposed to do when the word cancer is mentioned? What are we supposed to feel or how are we supposed to process when tragedy that we've only ever read about finds its ways into our stories? Look, people, this is an important question. Because for almost all of us, it's not a question of if, but When? A circumstance does not have to be catastrophic in nature to have a catastrophic impact. Do you know I mean by that? Right, we, we prayed even earlier, for those just, I mean, wildfires ripping through California. Okay? If your house burns down tomorrow, that will not be catastrophic compared to California, but that will be catastrophic to you. So don't think grandeur equals importance. It's not a question of if, but when. Hard circumstances, when tragedy might happen. And when that does happen, how are you and I responding to life in a broken world? And my prayer is hopefully you're responding to it with a risen Savior. See, there are are certainly perspectives that we could have Right? It's not healthy or good for us to be the Eeyore, walking around just hoping that, well, maybe it'll get better. That's not good for you. And I'm not a psychiatrist, psychologist, a sociologist, but I know that if we're constantly thinking that, it's probably going to get worse. It's not healthy. All right, That's my two cents of just psychology for a moment. But it's not good for us to be moping around if, if the glass is always half empty. But there is wisdom in thinking biblically. See, how we approach tragedy, how we approach brokenness, how we approach really what we thought our dream was going to be come crumbling down, it begins with your worldview. If you claim Christ, then you should be claiming to hold to a biblical worldview. What do I mean by that? Right? It means that we think biblically through all of life, through good and bad through tragedy and joy, through expected and unexpected. We think biblically. We look at the scriptures we're reminded of what they say about God's character and God's nature and who he is. See, there's wisdom in thinking this way. Viewing life in light of sin's reaching effect is actually very wise. To view life and remind ourselves that, that sin does exist is a wise way to live as a follower of Christ you will find yourself (coughs) with much less heartache. And not that you're walking eggshells waiting for the next bad thing to happen, but it won't shock you when it does, because you live in a broken world. See, creation, even in its supremacy of perfection, was not designed to bring the human person full satisfaction. Creation was never designed for that. Creation was designed in its perfection to bring full evidence and pointing to God the Creator. So, when Adam and Eve walked in the garden and things were perfect, it was designed not to make them feel good because the flower smelled amazing, because the lion didn't chase the lamb. It was designed to bring them to praise God for creating such beauties in front of them. The earth was not intended to fulfill your hopes and dreams. People were not designed to give you pure joy and satisfaction. And yet so many of us are shocked when someone lets us down. And I I think I've said this before, and it's not my original thought. It's it's from somebody else. But if I'm relying on my wife to be the sole provider of my satisfaction, how much pressure is that on Kim? Because I'm a moody kind of guy sometimes. That was the filter comment. All right. How unfair is that? But yet we live as if if others exist for our glorification and joy. Church, to live with a biblical worldview is to live and view all things within the sovereign rule of God as our Heavenly Father. To begin to understand how could Ruth possibly process this out? How could it possibly make sense? to even put our thoughts around that, even some of your tragedy, I would encourage you to remember this, that God is a sovereign God. And look, I get that doesn't sit well all the time. Meaning this, if God is sovereign and good and loving and gracious, why did they die? Why did that person die? Why do they have cancer? Why is there tragedy in the world? Please see our previous answers, sin and brokenness. And God allows things to happen outside of our understanding. He gets a view down the entire quarter of time, which none of us can do. He sees things beyond all things. And He allows things to happen for reasons that we just simply can't understand. But there are moments when those instances arise that we have to remind ourselves that God is sovereignly ruling as our Heavenly Father. God is not on vac- vacation. Situations are not driven by our goodness or our badness. They will not happen based upon whether we are a nice enough neighbor or not. Sure, we determine some things. Right? You choose to run the red light, you probably will be hit by a car. But even amongst that, God is still sovereign. And there's some weird sovereignty of God and human will that takes place that I don't understand how it all works together in the cosmos, but God does. But having a biblical worldview calls us to a greater reminder, church, that we are not the center of the universe, but Christ is. That despite the trial and the midst of all the heartache, we have Jesus. Jesus. So for these last moments, I want to talk to you that has claimed Christ as their Savior. And if you have not yet done that, you have not yet put your faith and trust in Christ alone, I want you to contemplate what this would look like in your own life. See, God does not call us to trust in Jesus and then live a life void of Him. He calls us to trust Him, not only for our salvation, but for the next breath we will take. Right, we, we always, I, I use the analogy, but it just works really well for me. So many of us were taught growing up that this is just Willy Wonka, kind of golden ticket salvation. Ask Jesus into your heart, and you'll be saved for eternity. And that's nice, right? That's, that, that's a golden ticket. That's a, we get to see Wonka's factory one day. But the problem is that A, asking Jesus in your heart, is not a biblical concept, And B, that same God who loves you enough, who gave His Son for you, who saved you from your sin, walks with you right now through the work of the Holy Spirit. See, Scripture calls us not to ask Jesus into our heart, but to trust in Christ as our Lord and Savior. You believe that you have been saved, right? We know that the Spirit takes root in our lives. He kind of takes residence. And He likes to clean a lot. We don't like to clean the corners of our house. I don't know if you do or not. We just don't think of them. You know what the Holy Spirit does? He gets into the corners of our lives. He says, look, "What about this area over here, man?" Jesus wants it too. I, I know that you struggle with this. Look, look, give it to the Lord. See, it's not this is golden kind of golden ticket. One day what we're hoping right for is that glory. It's now. It's a present reality. Having a biblical worldview calls us to remember we have Jesus. God does not call us to trust in Christ and just kind of live flippantly. Apart from, he calls us to live in relationship with him. Now, how does one preparing and viewing Christ and viewing life with him view suffering? How are we to view suffering then? Because scripture is very clear that suffering will come for the follower of Jesus. And perhaps you kind of read this thought to only like martyrs, right? That that those who will be killed for their faith. And I I think suffering is way more tangible than that, guys. Like if you kind of said like the suffering the New Testament talks about is only for those who will die for their faith one day, I, I think you've misread the scriptures. You will suffer in much more tangible ways than just giving your life if you're truly authentically following after Christ. And suffering for the Lord is a good thing. So how do we prepare for that? How do we prepare for suffering, for brokenness in a world when we're living with Christ? Well, listen to what Paul says in Philippians 3. Verses 7 through 8, he says this, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You see, just prior to that statement, Paul really goes on a litany of reasons, stock that he has. He's just gotten done recounting all the glories and all the greatnesses that he has on earth. His achievements. He says, look, all these things, all that I've gained, all that I've had, like I count it as loss, as if nothing. It does not hold any weight compared to knowing and having a relationship with Jesus. And you may say, well, Paul, look. I mean, you, you were a Pharisee among the Pharisees. You were zealous among the zealots. Like, these aren't necessarily bad things. And I, and I don't believe Paul would sit there and say, look, get rid of everything in your life that you think you, you're good at. But what Paul's trying to encourage you, I believe in me today, is this. Look, it's a proper perspective of your priority. Because truly, even that thing that you're holding as great can go away in a moment. So if we're putting all our stock in who we are as a people, in those around us, right? If who I am as a person is based in my wife and my four kids, right? This is not my prayer or my desire, but tragedy can strike my family in a moment. There are more times that Kim is driving with just her and the kids than with all of us in the car together. So just play the odds here, church. If tragedy happens with our family, right, and it happens to Kim in a vehicle, it has a greater impact because I'm probably not going to be there. And, and of course, it's not my desire this happens. My desire is that I get old with my wife and we... Send our kids out of our house one day, and it's just the two of us, and it's a quiet morning. Like, that's my goal. I'm hoping for that. Right? But that's not a guarantee. See, suffering is part of just present reality on earth. As part of humanity, we will have suffering. But being in relationship with Jesus is so much more precious than that suffering. There will be moments when things the world has to offer, both good and bad, are simply taken away. Guess what that is? That's suffering. In these moments, these are the words of John Piper, he says this, If we have followed Paul and the teaching of Jesus and have already counted them as loss for the surpassing value of gaining Christ, look, then we're prepared to suffer. Meaning, if we hold Christ above everything else, then we're willing to let things go a little bit easier. That's suffering. We're willing to do that because we know that Christ is more precious than anything else. So church, how do we prepare for this? How do you prepare, not for the the if heartache comes, but when it comes? See Jesus as more precious than anything else. And so, yes, if our job abandons us, we have Christ. And look for a new job. Be diligent. Be responsible. But you have Jesus. That's not lost with your job. That's not lost with your status. If tragedy strikes, you have Jesus. Listen, if death comes at your door knocking and you are in Christ, you have Jesus. To think biblically is to think Jesus. Paul, also in his, in his encouragement to the church in Thessalonica, writes in regard to his desire right, for them to be established. He says, look, I, I can't come to you. I want to be there, but I can't come to you. So i are going to send Timothy. Right? In chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians, he says this. I'm going to send him. We want Timothy to establish you and to exhort you in the faith. And so you're sitting there right now, maybe you're struggling like, I don't, I, I have, I'm trusting Jesus, but he, he's not here. Like He's, he's with me and I, I'm trying, but I don't know if he's the best that I have. I don't know if I think that way. Look, Paul wants you and he wants me and he wanted those he's writing to to be rooted and firmly placed in Christ. He wants us to be established, to be rooted, to be firm, so that when tragedy does come, we would be established in Jesus. For their understanding would be able to be seen beyond their present circumstance and beyond their situation. So how do we do that? You have to spend time in God's word. You have to know who the God of the Bible really is and what dramatic and drastic efforts he went to redeem you and to restore you through the sending of his son Jesus, and when he restored you through salvation in Christ alone, he did not leave you as you are, but he's been constantly working in the corners of your life. You may think, well, hold on, you're saying that that God says I'm not good enough? No. (laughs) You're not good enough for glory apart from Christ. And then he loves you enough just to work in you. He loves me enough to work in me. To conform me more to the image of Christ. Why? So I can be a better husband, a better dad, a better neighbor, one that just flows out of the love of Jesus, a better pastor, and whatever you're doing, better at that as well. What do we mean by better? One that exemplifies Christ in a greater way. Guys, Ruth, Orpah, Naomi, they did not have Jesus to cling to. They were clinging to the God of the Bible of the sovereignty. You have the goodness of Christ to cling to. You've got the scriptures revealing to you a salvation found in Christ alone. And look, if you've trusted in him, I'm begging you to pursue Jesus above everything else. Anything that you pursue to give you joy and satisfaction that's apart from Christ, look, I'll promise you, I'm not very old or very wise, but I'll promise you this, it will bankrupt Eventually. Because if you're trusting your spouse to give you joy, what if that spouse dies before you? Now you're bankrupt. You're with nothing. If that job is supposed to fulfill you with satisfaction, well, you can lose your job tomorrow. If your finances are to be your security blanket in all of life, it's not bad planning. That's actually very wise to be forward thinking, but the stock market can crash tomorrow and our dollar can be worth nothing. Guys, scripture is so wise and helpful. It says we're missed. A mist. He says, look, trying to grab these things for satisfaction is like trying to grab vapor in the air. Quinnie thought it was the coolest thing this week when he could see his breath. He's four. He can't grab it, though. As we continue to watch this story of Ruth and Naomi unfold, right, it's truly going to be how do they walk out this tragedy in their lives. But I'll give you the ending now. Ruth is not the point of the story. God and his provision is the point of the story of Ruth. God and his care is the point of the story of Ruth. And so listen, church, when when things are hard, we must too press ahead. But we do not do this on our own. We press ahead into Jesus and with Jesus. We understand that, that despite what our circumstances may be and, and though we don't understand why God will allow it to happen, he's still ruling and reigning. And then we also press into each other as well. right? Naomi, as a childless widow, found herself in a very precarious situation where she needed community more than ever before. Because the body of Christ, my prayer is that we may encourage each other to be rooted in Jesus. So that when suffering comes, not if but when, Our faith is established beyond the situation and firmly in our eternal hope. If you have nothing else to be thankful for, you can be thankful that you have a God who rules and reigns and is sovereign and is not on vacation and has not checked out, who hears your prayer, who cares for your soul, who sent his son for you, and when you are in Christ, has given his spirit to indwell you, to convict you, to encourage you, to strengthen you, you are blessed. Cling to Jesus in your circumstances, in spite of your circumstances, and above your circumstances. Let's pray. God, it is sometimes a hard thing to do to open our hands and to just give things to you, circumstances and, and, and situations and people that we don't quite understand. But Father, would you help us to just remind ourselves this morning that, God, you are sovereign. Even over the story of Naomi, you were on your throne, you allowed it to take place, and as we will see, it actually is for your glory that it happens. And Father, you are for your glory. It's what you deserve. Father, would we cling to you above all things for our complete safety, for our security, which is eternal because it's founded in Christ. And then, as situations and circumstances come to us in life, would we remind ourselves that we're walking with you through these things, seeing Jesus as better, more precious than anything else. Amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.